The other day I was sitting in, a, in the Alte Schloss in Stuttgart mm -hmm. and my dressing room was a castle. But I was like, fucking right, yes, I deserve this. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like, oh my God, it was like, yeah, this fits. Das ist der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast, der Podcast rund um Nachtleben und Clubkultur. Wir sprechen mit DJs, Türstehern, Tänzern, Clubbetreibern und anderen Nachtmenschen. Mein Name ist Gesine Kühne. Und ich bin Jakob Töne. Herzlich willkommen beim Electronic Beats Podcast. Willkommen zurück zum Electronic Beats Podcast. Ich bin Gesine Kühne, aber das habt ihr wahrscheinlich schon an der Stimme erkannt. Ich habe mich für diese Podcast-Folge auf den Weg nach Köln gemacht, um Musiker und Entertainer Chili Gonzales zu treffen. Der lebt ja seit ein paar Jahren in Köln, nicht mehr in Berlin. Ursprünglich kommt er aus Kanada und mit drei Jahren hat er schon das Klavierspielen gelernt, später Jazz-Piano studiert. Er hat mit Daft Punk einen Grammy gewonnen. Ja, das sind nur so ein paar kleine Stationen aus diesem sehr bunten, aufregenden Entertainer-Leben. Jason Beck heißt er eigentlich wirklich. Er hat schon mit zahlreichen Künstlern zusammengearbeitet. Peaches ist eine gute Freundin, so auch Feist. Daft Punk habe ich schon erwähnt, mit denen hat er einen Grammy gewonnen. Boys Noise ist auch ein guter Freund und Jarvis Cocker kommt auch wieder in seinem musikalischen Leben vor. Neben den Einflüssen so von Pop und Rap, er ist riesiger Rap-Fan, aber das werdet ihr gleich hören, und Jazz, liegt seine Faszination beim Piano. Und in diesem Gespräch... Besonders zum Ende hin soll es auch nochmal um ihn als ja, so eine Art Musiklehrer gehen. Denn er hat das Conservatory gegründet. Was das genau ist, das hört ihr gleich. Es ist quasi eine Musikschule. Und was er mit dieser Musikschule will für einige wenige ausgewählte musikalische Talente, das erzählt er ganz, ganz, ganz toll. Das möchte ich nicht vorwegnehmen. Und es ist echt spannend, wie er so die Musikwelt sieht. Jetzt noch eine kleine Information für euch. Ich möchte euch nämlich eb.tv vorstellen. Wenn ihr zum Beispiel Chili Gonzales nicht nur im Interview hören möchtet, sondern auch live sehen wollt, dann könnt ihr euch am besten das Electronic Beats Konzert aus Graz aus dem Jahr 2013 anschauen. Aber 2013 ist jetzt ja auch schon ein paar Jährchen her. Es gibt ganz frische Aufnahmen, nämlich von Anfang August. Da hat Chili Gonzales ein Konzert auf der Domplatte in Köln gegeben, Solo Piano 3. Und Teile davon haben wir mitgefilmt. Und die gibt es dann auf eb.net zu sehen. Also immer schön mal wieder auf die Webseite gehen und die Videos anklicken. Apropos Videos. Immer wieder dienstags veröffentlicht der YouTube-Kanal von Telekom Electronic Beats ein neues Video und darunter gibt es Live-Mitschnitte von Moderat, Mode Selector, Underworld, Ray X, Richie Horton und wie sie nicht alle heißen, also quasi alle eure lieblingselektronischen Musikkünstler. Vom Video zurück zum gesprochenen Wort. Wir sind ja hier beim Podcast und ich möchte euch Chili Gonzales jetzt nicht länger vorenthalten, aber eine wichtige Info habe ich noch, bevor wir in dieses Gespräch eintauchen. Denn eventuell wundert ihr euch, dass auf einmal ein Klavier bedient wird. Klar, Chili Gonzales ist Pianist, der spielt dann auch mal Klavier. Aber das ging halt nur, weil wir uns in einem Pianoladen getroffen haben in Köln, aber nicht vorne im Verkaufsraum, wo alle Klaviere und Flügel eng beieinander stehen. Nein, wir hatten den Zutritt zum Saal. Das war in so einer Art Hinterhaus mit Fischgräten, Parkett, mit hohen Decken und gefühlt standen da 20 Flügel. So, jetzt wisst ihr Bescheid und an dieser Stelle wünsche ich euch wirklich viel Spaß mit dieser unfassbaren Person Chili Gonzales. 
Schön, dass du da bist. Jason oder Chili? Maestro ist best. Maestro. Ja. Gut, Maestro. Ich freue mich sehr. And now we switch to English. Yes, I'll be benutzen some verschiedene German Worte. Like Rampensau, for example. I'll just, yeah, there's some words that I think German captures much better than mm -hmm. English. And uh, for example, with, with my drummer, um, when I started to say, his name is Joe, and I would say, on drums, Joe, you know, and in French, I'd say, à la batterie, Joe. And then when it came to German, I would say, I'm Schlagzeug, Joe. And I sort of realized Schlagzeug captures something very essential about the drummer's job mm -hmm. more than English or French because it means just hit stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in a way, that's what drummers do, They right? Stuff, like a drummer yeah. is just like, oh, I want to hit stuff, you know? <laughs> like and Animal so, from the Muppets, right? <laughs> exactly. And so I feel like sometimes German just captures something very essential in in the words and so yeah once in a while i have to switch to german okay well you're totally allowed because i mean the listeners will understand german Deutsch ist well. nicht verboten. nein überhaupt nicht bitte gerne um you're from canada we know that and you're living in cologne now in köln but you did berlin and paris before um how did certain cities or places change you as one the personal person you are and the artist you are? Well, I think it's more how do I change the place that I go to? Oh, you know, like so? I went to Berlin and because I was Canadian mm -hmm. and because I was with a group of other Canadians such as Peaches and Maki and Feist and this kind of crew, this musical family we had, we were able to bring this other way of looking at the scene. Mm -hmm. And I remember this is also the case when I was living in Toronto before I even left and like a German person or a DJ from Holland or some Russian painter, there would just be foreigners who would come to Toronto and would open up our minds because when you're in a city and you're in there for a long time and it's your home, you're not aware of its strengths and weaknesses. You don't really have the objectivity and you're also very much aware of what everyone else is thinking. So it's kind of hard to be an original thinker mm -hmm. when you're stuck in a place that you've been for so long. So I always like the idea of, of changing cities uh, and moving somewhere new. Yes, it keeps myself fresh, of course. You go somewhere new, but you observe and learn very quickly and you can diagnose the new city that you're in, in a way that someone who's lived there can't. And so mm -hmm. you have this fresh look on it. And I believe that when you go somewhere new, you have to change the scene because you can see it in a way that they can't. And that's why I'm always very, very interested in meeting people who have just been new to a, to a place. I think mm -hmm. artistically, it's very exciting to hang out with people who are seeing it in this objective way. And you learn about your scene, you learn about yourself through the eyes of someone objective. Do you have like an approximate time frame you stay in one place? Or is that um, connected to the, to the city you're in? <laughs> I think it's more connected to the things that happen in your life, the mm -hmm. the, the, the meetings, you know. I, I I understand that when I meet new people, they can be very influential on me and to the point where I, I want to be closer to them, either working with them, hanging out with them. And sometimes you just, uh, on a personal level, also meet people that become important to you in either relationships or just friendships or working 
relationships. And so all of this, it's more people, I think, that lead me to start spending time somewhere. And then after a while, you think, huh, could I imagine living here? I mean, you know, Paris was because of a professional relationship with a, a guy called Renaud Letton, mm-hmm. uh, a producer and mixer and he kind of became my studio partner in some years where I was really learning about the studio and and I started to hang out there because of him he would give me work so I would go there for two weeks live in a hotel the next time three weeks live in a hotel Mm. and I start to think oh could I imagine living here and what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages and at some point you decide I can imagine living here and you give it a try Mm. so it's not really like I'm on a schedule, I might stay in Cologne the rest of my life. I don't think I have to move somewhere. Mm. But if I met the right person who on a personal or professional level gives me a chance to discover a place, you know, with Cologne, it was something personal. It was a personal relationship that led me to start spending time here and to understand that I could really build a life I would like here. Mm. You left Berlin behind. We know that. But you did call yourself once the president of the Berlin Underground. Why is that? Well, I never actually said I was the president, but I was hoping to be elected. A president can't just declare themselves, I think. Mm. You, you have to have the will of the people oh, behind I, you. Sometimes I think in Berlin that's even possible because I know a couple of people calling themselves the mayor of Berlin Mitte, for example, because they do their little kids tour. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I think when I got to Berlin, um, as I said, as a Canadian, as a foreigner, you're able to see the strengths and weaknesses of a scene mm. or a, a, a sort of culture of the city and how they work. And there were so many inspiring things about Berlin artists and how deeply they uh, went, how intense their obsession was. Uh, because the city was not an expensive city, people could really get lost in their artwork and you would meet people who would spend six months building the most insane, obsessively detailed artworks. And there seemed to be a legitimate resistance to careerism Mm. and the idea of you have to make it and uh, you have to uh, have success at any cost. So there's this strange mix of going very deep and at the same time kind of resisting a lot of these compromises that you get used to living in North America where everyone is very much interested in changing themselves to Mm -hmm. succeed. And so when we got there, there was an interesting mix of uh, um, the illusion that you have to choose one or the other. So I think when me and my crew kind of arrived in Berlin, we sort of thought, oh, Can't you have both? Isn't it possible to go very deep and be very obsessed and to not change yourself for success, but also get success? And this kind of became a fusion of maybe the Canadian uh, pretty straightforward capitalist route and the sort of Berlin idea of sort of resistance of this uh, of this pressure. Uh, and so I think that became something that we could bring to the Berlin scene. Mm-hmm. I remember many of the artists we hung out with were sort of impressed with how the Canadian crew would just sort of go ahead and do things fearlessly. But we saw them as fearless because of how deep they went into the actual artwork. So I think this fearlessness in terms of 
looking for your audience and the fearlessness of getting lost in your artwork actually complement each other really, really well. And so that's one way that Berlin influenced us, but that's another way that we influenced our little circle mm. uh, that we met in Berlin. And there was this exchange in realizing uh, when people tell you you have to choose, are you a true artist or are you looking for your audience? Uh, it's more than possible to do both at the same time. In fact, it's, it's what all the artists that we worship have done. Mm. Do you miss... Berlin sometimes or you, your crew there or what happened there when you came to Berlin in the beginning it, would it still be possible or has the city changed too much for that I don't know I, I go there and see of course I still okay. see my friends but I'm 47 years old most of my crew from that time are also <laughs> around my age and there's at least two gener or three generations of new artists and new blood that was in mm. Berlin. I have no idea really what's, what's going on, except when I go there, I'm really happy to hang out with my old friends and uh, the people that we, we, uh, we came up with and, um, I miss it and I go there really, really often. So I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to go there for concerts or for work or just because it's only four hours on the train. I can just jump in and, and, uh, hang out for a couple of days with my, mm. with my buddies in Berlin. And, and, um, I'm very happy here in Cologne and I'm, You know, I don't think it's possible to have the feeling that we had back then when we were in our mid-twenties. Uh, it's not really possible when you're, uh, it's 20 years later. So I don't really think it was better then or it was worse then. I just think it was the perfect time for this to happen. And it was an exciting time because you only get to have your dream come true really once in your life. Mm -hmm. and that was the moment where my dream came true. And Chili Gonzalez was born there. And it was born there because... It couldn't have been born anywhere else. And so, of course, it has this special asterisk next to it because it's the first place that showed me that I could, uh, that my dream could come true. I'm going to stick to Berlin just because it has such a um, heavy history as a divided city back in the days and so on. Because I want to know if you're a political person. Just concerning your background, your grandparents had to leave Hungary because of the Nazis. Did that make you a political person? And maybe that was one reason why Berlin was also attractive for you? Um, I would say that uh, politics is pretty much everywhere. So the idea of, for example, uh, meeting artists who didn't care about uh, having a big audience or a lot of money, this was in one way refreshing and in some way shocking to me because I'd grown up with this sort of religion of success that mm. came from uh, my father. And I would say North American culture is definitely adding to it. So I had it very heavy in the family, but also in society. And so just to meet artists who legitimately were resisting that, um, that is a kind of political statement, but it's also personal taste in how your lifestyle is and what mm. you want from life. So politics is sort of hidden in every choice you make uh, regarding where you live, how you live, um, what your priorities are. Of course, politics is in everything. If I say I'm a musical genius, that in one way is also a political statement because It's not considered politically correct, for example, to call yourself a genius. And mm -hmm. so by crossing some line, you provoke people into taking a position on what you did. And that is very political in itself. 
if you look at my lyrics, I don't think there's a lot of overt political statements in interviews. I don't really like to talk about politics because I may be also not always educating myself enough to feel like I have something to offer mm -hmm. publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, and here and there, there are certain issues or times where my political interest will increase because maybe I feel more concerned about it. Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm a political person in the sense that I feel like I want to share that publicly. I've never made a political statement on social media in an interview or on stage that I can think of. And yet politics are everywhere in every choice you make. When you decide to play in a concert hall and they tell you that the, the ticket price has to be something. And we say, we can't do that because we're scared of having ticket prices that are too high mm -hmm. because we're afraid that the audience will only be rich enough to come white enough to come old enough to come. Uh, and that makes the concert less enjoyable. That's not really an overtly political statement because it's just about what I feel when I'm on stage. I like to have a more mixed audience. That's my taste. Mm -hmm. That's what makes me enjoy the concert more. Some people might read politics into that, but it's not coming from a place of politics. Okay. You did learn the piano quite early from your grandpa. Yeah. Age of three. That's very, very young. I can't remember anything when I was three, I think. No, uh, me neither. I, so I, I don't so remember have, starting. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you have, but do you have one um, memory, like the, the first memory of a piano in front of you where you were older, so you can remember? Was there, is there anything you remember playing for the first time? Not really. I mean, you know, when you see photos, mm -hmm. you kind of incorporate it into your memory. So mm -hmm. I sort of, as you say that, I picture the photos that I've seen. Mm -hmm. uh, but my real memories at the piano that are the strongest would probably come from uh, a little bit later in my teenage years. Because there was a time when I was maybe 13 or 14, I decided to really go deep into playing the piano and I started to play several hours a day in a in a basement where there was the piano and there was a stairway up to the kitchen and I can really remember that I was making a choice to not do what the other children were mostly doing which was going outside doing stuff and I remember thinking I'm going to hide in a certain way mm -hmm in this basement until then I'm ready to go out into the world. And this was like a more conscious decision that has to maybe, this is the moment that maybe my future was designed in a way more than when I was three. Yeah. I, don't, I can't really remember it, but when I was a young teenager, I can remember thinking, I want my life to be this. This is what's going to protect me, but this is also going to project me out into the world. Mm. And I could understand that this was like a strategy that I was deciding and that if I do this, I will find my place in the world. I will have people's respect. I will have girls who are attracted to me because I do this. I will maybe meet other musicians who I admire by doing this. It was very conscious at that mm -hmm. moment. And everything else must have been much more unconscious in my earlier days because I was just, you know, playing music with my brother the whole time, basically. And, and around this time, 13, 14, is when my brother left to go to college. He's four years older than me. And I was alone in that house. And that was the moment I was like, now I go to the piano, now I get serious. This was like the moment 
maybe that if there was a biography movie of me, this would be the moment that in some way I decided to become mm. Chili Gonzalez without knowing the name yet. I yeah. just sort of could understand this is going to, uh, this is going to save me from the frustrations and awkwardness that I would feel if I tried to sort of be in the world more. It was going to, it was going to be a place I could hide and then come out of. I have two questions towards that picture you just painted. One is, have you ever pondered upon having not a piano in your life? What would it be like? Or, or was it not possible because there was always pianos around you? Have you ever like, kind of thought, what would have been? Well, I would say the early years in Berlin, I didn't have a piano at my house. Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit feeling a little strange mix of my musical training and what it gave me. There was moments where I thought... I need to kind of forget about my musical training because that's not what our time is about. Mm -hmm. And this was the time in early Berlin where I was attracted to performance art much more and provoking people, what we would now call trolling. Uh, before there was the word trolling, I was experimenting with this idea of going out of my way to uh, provoke and surprise people in a way that um, got a, a very strong reaction. And uh, in a way, I thought, well, my musical training isn't, isn't what's needed right now. And so I didn't have a piano. I didn't really play the piano that often. And I was doing my albums, which were basically beats with, with rapping. My mm -hmm. second album, I didn't even make the music. It was all these great Berlin guys who were in the, the digital hardcore scene uh, were making beats for me. Bomb 20, Patrick Catani, uh, people like that. And uh, this was a time when I thought, fuck the piano. It's yes, it's part of who I am, but it's it's not the focus here. Mm -hmm. And so I think if today somehow both my hands were cut off and I couldn't play the piano anymore, I can still be an artist. I I'm a musician and an artist and an entertainer, and it so happens the piano is the, the easiest way to get to people directly is through the piano for me. But I already proved in the first four or five years of what I was doing in Berlin that it's not really about the piano. It can be transferred to so many other things. And um, of course, it would be sad if I couldn't play the piano anymore, but I don't think it means that I have to stop doing what I'm doing. Yeah. The other question goes back to that picture you painted as a teenager. Um, were you an awkward, nerdy kid? Because that's what it sounded like, that you wanted to hide in the basement and just play the piano. Yes, like, I, I definitely struggled socially, I would yeah. say. And the piano gave me confidence. Mm -hmm. Once I started to become good at it and I could play the piano at uh, parties for my uh, school. And then the cool kids, they sort of knew that I was a good piano player. And so they might say, hey, you know, I want to sing I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. Can you, can you play it for me? And I would start to make the cool kids look good because I could... I could play you know and so to be a musician meant i didn't really have to choose between cool kids stoners nerds i could kind of be okay with everybody mm -hmm. because you know music does 
bring people together and musical talent does create uh, an impression uh, on people and it gives you a kind of special treatment. And this started very early for me that I recognized the special treatment music could get me in my family at school and later on just in society at large. And I'm, I will admit I'm addicted to this special treatment. You know, the other, the other day I was sitting in a, in the Alter Schloss in Stuttgart mm -hmm. playing at the jazz open and, 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 My dressing room was a castle, you know, and I, I but, but I was like, fucking right. Yes, I deserve this. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like, oh my God, it was like, yeah, this fits, you know? So I clearly have this thing of, of, yes, I'm here because of my musical talent and my musical talent has gotten me to a place where my, my backstage dressing room is a castle. I like that. I like that you just don't care about down to earth and then again, you wear your slippers, which is quite down to earth because it's comfortable. It's comfortable, but a little bit disrespectful. Is it? I don't find I mean, it. maybe not in this situation, no. but, but in a castle or, or in a Philharmonie, mm -hmm. it's lightly disrespectful for sure to say, yeah, I'm making this place into my living room, mm -hmm. you know, compared to the other people who play in Philharmonies where they're coming on in their best dressed suit and their shiny black shoes and, uh, and, and acting like they're in a church. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, the Philharmonie is, is not a church where I go to pray. No, it, I turn it into my living room. Because the living room is the setting you need to be completely comfortable in your art? or Well, because we have more fun in a living room than in a church. I mean, That let's just true. be honest. That you know? is very true, you yeah. <laughs> I, I want people to let go yeah. and to forget where they are and to just uh, come into an intimate zone with me. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I, I try to, everything that I, that I wear and everything, how I approach being on stage even having, you know, uh, certain lighting type uh, plans are all there to create intimacy. Even the moments where I make the audience maybe dislike me a little bit, this kind of trolling type behavior, it also creates intimacy because it means I'm willing to risk something. And in a relationship with someone, it can't always just be happy and good and when you feel close to people it's also because they're they're a they're honest and b they're not always trying to present their best face to you and so i'm happy to show or exaggerate or put a mise-en-scene around some of my bad qualities mm -hmm. like uh, my sense of entitlement to my success for example is part of who I am on stage as well. I don't try to hide it mm. because I think, well, it's part of who I am and it's not so bad. I have, I have good qualities and I have bad qualities. I'll let the audience uh, see a little bit of all of it. And of course, there are some parts that are so personal I keep for myself. I'm very mm. careful about what I share uh, because an artist who shares everything is pathetic and is probably going to have personal tragedy from sharing everything but the artist who doesn't share anything at all is losing out on a chance to have a real relationship with their audience so i try to find that perfect amount of personal things i can share that i think add to the power of the music but there's a lot i keep for myself certain issues and people and things i would just never speak about you know i don't talk about my personal life much other than talking about 
the the sort of religion of competition within which I grew up yeah. and the sort of competitive nature of the relationship with my brother, things like this, they're already in my songs. And so I'm happy to talk about them or in my documentary, shut up and play the piano. But there are other issues and other people I would never talk about because I just don't think it would add to the power of the music or it's too personal and um, I need to keep it for myself. Which is totally understandable because then, I mean, if you give too much, there's really a place where people could start nagging and maybe... maybe. Well, it just means you also don't, you don't respect the seriousness of your own emotions and mm -hmm. the people around you. And, um, and it means that everything is up for grabs in order to get that feeling of approval from the outside world. Mm -hmm. So this has to be kept under control. I think people who share too many photos of their young children online, to me, that is a sign that too much is out there to get public approval. Mm -hmm. And there's not enough um, satisfaction just from certain things alone. I, you know, my personal relationships, I, I can't imagine why I would talk about them publicly because they're, um, they're so precious. Mm. You know, when we were doing the documentary, I wasn't, I, I had to tell the director, look, you can't film me when I'm just hanging out with my friends or sitting at home doing my routines when I'm not working, you know, but The good news is I work a lot. I work at home. I work with friends. So if you want to see me in Feist, you just have to see us work together and you'll feel our relationship. But don't film us when we're just having breakfast. You mm -hmm. know? Um, and that's the good thing about when your work and your friendships are kind of all combined. You know? Is that important for you to have um, that friend-work relationship? Is it easier to work with it, friends? It just for sort of example? happened that okay. way, I guess, because I made work the center of my life. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I guess I'm attracted to people who also uh, make work the center of life. And the way I like to work is a feeling of uh, you're always kind of working. Mm -hmm. When you go for a walk, you're working. Sometimes people don't understand that. I have to think about something for a really long time. What's my next album going to be? Well, I'm probably thinking about that several hours per day, no matter when. And that is a kind of work, mm -hmm. you know? And I like that... Uh, my work doesn't have such a perfect boundary around it. And, um, and so it's not that it's important to me. Uh, sometimes I even have regret that I don't have enough friends who aren't uh, in some way like obsessive creative people. Uh, but it just so happens that's who I got closest with in my life. So I must feel comfortable with people who uh, share this because maybe this is one dividing line between kinds of people. Uh, an obsessive person is going to spend time differently than a person who doesn't really have obsessions. Um, Or do you think everyone is obsessed with something? No, I wouldn't say so. There are like, people I, who aren't, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I definitely think that there are people that are not obsessed, that are just going to work nine to five, um, chose a different path. Maybe an easier one, I don't know. That's not up for my judgment, but I do understand you. <laughs> and I, yeah, I love working with friends. It's more fun because you're honest and you can be honest. And there's no hard feelings when you criticize, for example, because you understand that you just want the best of them. Or yes. And, and maybe in German culture also, because Germans 
aren't as afraid of confrontation as Canadians are. One thing I really got inspired by living in Germany is that when it comes to discussing art or politics, uh, lifestyle issues, it seems like Germans are pretty easy with being honest mm -hmm. uh, compared to some other cultures where people are more fake or are always going to be encouraging even if they don't actually believe it. Mm -hmm. And so I like to be around Germans for this reason <laughs> and uh, to know that I can trust uh, their advice when I'm asking for uh, advice on my work or my decisions. Let's talk about pop music a bit. You studied the jazz piano, but I saw a couple of your YouTube clips for Eins Live, the radio station, where you explain pop, right? Is there a fascination behind pop music for you or is it just because there's always a connection to cl classical music terms, something you can draw your info from and translate it into pop music? Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I, I'm interested in, in pop music, I think, because there are these songs that, uh, that aren't just songs anymore. They become like moments mm -hmm. that everybody shares. And this is what I like. I like the power of these songs. I like the power of the 300 songs that everybody knows, mm -hmm. whether it's Beethoven, Monshine, Sonata, or whether it's Hit Me Baby One More Time, whatever it is, what, from whatever time. Take Five by Dave Brubeck is a really good example of a, of a song. I, I recently was playing jazz festivals, and I really thought... I need, to, I need to make these jazz festival shows somehow special. I want to talk about jazz a little bit. I want to talk about... And I sort of started playing Take Five a lot, the song by Dave Brubeck. Do you know it? Mm -mm. You don't know it? I'm sure you do. <laughs> It's the one that goes like this. Oh, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. <laughs> and I was thinking about it, and I was playing it in soundcheck over the last couple of months, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it really is... Five beats to the bar. It's dun, 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 one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. It's very rare. There's no other song that I can think of that everybody would know that is in five beats to the bar. It's a strange rhythm time signature. Mm -hmm. It's what made the song, in a way, so unique. And I thought, what if it was not take five? What if it was just a boring old four beats to the bar like every other piece of music we know and then it becomes take four and i started to play a version called take four in my concert and it was like this one two three four one two three four and then you can go to take three and it's like a waltz one two three one two three one two three or you can make like take two which sounds like a rap song, maybe, or a sample. Or you could have just take one, which is like electronic music. And the reason this little routine, which now I do on stage every night at these jazz festivals, and it goes really well. It's, it's a very entertaining little music lesson mm -hmm. because it really captures not just something funny about music, but it captures something about musical style, And the fact that this Take Five by Dave Brubeck is already so deep in everyone's brain that I can play with it like a toy and, and show something about music. But if people didn't know Take Five, 
I couldn't do this. Mm-hmm. So this is what interests me in songs that become so popular, they become iconic. They become like tools that reveal something about music. And when I do those Eins Live, uh, I always pick you know songs that I... I either really like or I just pick songs that are so popular that it's going to be easy to use them to pull back the curtain on on the musical process. But every comparison I make is always has to be one of these iconic songs. Mm. So when I do my lesson about arpeggios, my examples are Monshine Sonata. That's an arpeggio, mm-hmm. right? An arpeggio is just playing the notes one by one, right? To get these patterns. And then I go into... In the Mood by Glenn Miller. And then I go into Hotel California guitar solo. You know? And then I end up with like some Daft Punk or something. And I've chosen four iconic pieces of music from different periods, from totally different styles, but they all share this one musical tool called the arpeggio. But the only way people get it is if they recognize every example. And so I have to choose music that I'm sure like 98% of the audience is going to get. Then it works. Mm -hmm. This is why I like pop music. I don't listen to pop music, but I use it in my show because of these, the capacity of pop music to be, to create a moment and to get stuck in someone's head forever. You just um, talked about certain eras in music. Is there any certain era you wish it would come back or doesn't it matter? We just go on and there will be new stuff. No, we're in the best era now. Okay. I think. Because I mean, we have everything. Well, we have what we have. Mm. And and it's there's a cultural reason that the music sounds the way it does. And so you don't fight it. You say, oh, there's a reason. It has to be this way. It's evolving You know, especially rap music evolves very fast these days. And that's one of the reasons I always liked rap music is that it goes fast. And so you can watch it develop mm-hmm. and then you can start to think, oh, why is it going in this direction? Why now is rap all about sadness? Why is rap so sad in this moment? And you can sort of start to think about our culture and sort of think, okay, what, what, what is the connection with the blues? The blues was also a very sad music. Rap becomes more like the blues. Interesting, you know? So, I always feel like if you're looking at music history, uh, it's very easy to see the trends. But what's more interesting is to see what's happening today in real time. How is it moving? How is it changing? Uh, and it changes for many reasons. Technology is one of the biggest reasons, of course, because it means the sound of the music changes, but also the technology of how people um, consume the music. Mm. So we're in this new era of streaming, and streaming is changing how people listen. So I'm very interested in what does that do psychologically to people? How does it change what the artists are doing? Some artists think our album has to have 30 songs on it because then we have more chances of someone listening to our piece on Spotify. It's like a very capitalist solution to what the streaming era is. And other artists say, no, no, I do the opposite. I'm going to make short albums. They're going to have seven songs on them because people have a lower attention span. Everyone's guessing. How, how do you continue to exist in the streaming era, right? So the technology 
sort of poses a question and a really clever artist can do so much with it. That's how when Kanye West a couple of years ago started changing the album after it was released, The Life of Pablo, and you would wake up and he would have added a verse or a new mix. And it was like, yeah, here's someone very clever who thought, what does the streaming era offer me that wasn't there before? Oh, I know. I can change my album even after it's mm -hmm. released. Mm -hmm. That's a brilliant reaction to mm -hmm. technology. That's why we're in the best era because we're all figuring out where it's going to go where where is it heading yeah you mentioned one side of uh, technology that which is streaming and and our connectiveness um but because you mentioned rap and you said it's so sad i was thinking of the production and i was thinking gosh so many rap artists are using edm for example like electronic dance music beats and then rap and it sounds so generic and kind of boring or out of tune is everywhere. What do you think about that? Like I said, there's always a reason, you know? I mean, what's one of the first rap songs was uh, Africa Bambada sampling Kraftwerk. It's not new that electronic music is one of the mm. biggest influences on rap. And uh, I don't know. I, I think if you listen to uh, the albums that I listened to most recently was like Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib, Tyler, the creator. I don't know. There's no auto tune on those albums. I'm not against auto tune, mm -hmm. but if you are against auto tune, there's enough there for you that you can find stuff without it. So I think, uh, I think there's always a reason. And, um, I don't know. I like a lot of, uh, I like a lot of auto tune music too. I have nothing. It's, I guess it's always how you use it. It's a little bit like saying, you know, I don't like, I don't like, music with guitar in it it'd be like really can you really say that you really hate the guitar so much that you refuse to mm. even you know surely there's at least one or two guitarists that would do something that wouldn't offend you if you're a guitar hater you know <laughs> so i sort of think autotune's the same it's just okay. a tool have you ever tried to sing an autotune personally no I did it once. I, I remember I was doing some backup vocals and they were, it was like a really difficult part to sing. It was a bit high for my register. And I thought, oh, maybe with a bit of autotune, it'll be better. I didn't really want people to necessarily hear that it was autotune. It was just to be able to accomplish the thing I wanted to accomplish. It was like a real tool. But just when I was messing around, suddenly I could hear myself as a kind of crying robot. You know, that's, that's the appeal of autotune is mm -hmm. the robot that cries. Mm -hmm. There's something very poetic about it. And to hear myself transformed into the crying robot was really exciting. And I could really imagine if you're like a 18 year old kid and you go into the studio for the first time and you're rapping and then it comes time to do your chorus and you hear yourself with the autotune for the first time. It's kind of like, it just suddenly turns you into Uh, you feel like your emotions can come out more because you're not worried about, oh, am I singing out of tune, which is a very uh, difficult fear to live with. You know, before autotune, it was really stressful for me to go and sing backup vocals because you go in and you're like, ah, and you suddenly realize, oh, I'm out of tune. I'm not a good singer. But you have so much emotion that wants to come out. Autotune makes that easy for a singer who doesn't have a lot of experience or a rapper who doesn't have a lot of experience, who just wants to be able to create that emotion. And autotune lets you do that. It's very seductive. So there's a reason. There's a reason why this technology is seductive. And I guess you just have to find what you can handle because surely every new tool, there are people who use it well and there are people who use it badly. Mm. So there is probably no musical trend that you find overrated or do you? 
Well, I'm sure there are, but they're just <laughs> things I haven't heard or haven't mm. been attracted to, mm-hmm. or, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things I don't like. I don't like people with, who scream a lot in their vocals. Mm-hmm. I like, I don't like hearing singers sing very loudly or, or rap very loudly. I don't like music where it feels like the people aren't having fun. Mm-hmm. That's not about a genre or a trend, but it's just about if I feel like the people aren't having fun, if I feel like especially the singers or the singer is not convincing in terms of the character they've chosen, which is a very hard thing to, to, to quantify. But if I feel like I'm not convinced by a singer, then it really doesn't matter what the, what, what the rest of the music is or anything that that's, that's non-negotiable. So there's all these things. If you're not having fun, it's non-negotiable. I will never like a song that sounds like it wasn't made by musicians who were having some fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, but once I get past those kind of barriers of fun and uh, how convincing you are, uh, then of course genre and trend don't don't really matter so much. It's it's really about just feeling like you believe the person. I think. And rap is so believable. Is that your? Some rappers are are belie- very believable. Yeah. Some some not so much. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that I don't listen to so much. Yeah. Do you remember your first encounter with rap? The first encounter, no. But I remember when I understood that it was on the level of jazz and classical and all of these kind of music, that there was a real uh, tradition and a system. And it was truly a new way of making music was around the early, um, the early records of Busta Rhymes. Mm-hmm. And that's when I felt the musical virtuosity but also the playfulness and also how modern it was uh and that it was also i mean there was so much i liked about it obviously i also liked how the rappers saw themselves as entertainers i think i read an interview with buster rhymes where he used that word and i remember thinking that's the word i'm looking for that's because everyone knows buster rhymes is a is an artist everyone knows that he was pushing things forward with his, with his flow and his choice of beats. It was very up to date at its, at the time, even the video, the video for dangerous with all the slow motion stopping. It was very up to date. It was like, Oh, this is something new. And yet he didn't seem to need to prove to anyone that he's an artist. And it was like in the world I was in, in the indie rock world, everyone was always saying, I'm an artist, I'm an artist, I'm an artist. And I always thought, Yeah, but but Buster Rhymes, who's clearly more of an artist than any of you, he's not he's not even saying it. He's saying he's an entertainer because what he's interested in is bringing this modern, up to date style of music and what he's doing. He wants to bring it to as big as an audience as possible, and that's what makes him an entertainer. He's oriented on the audience in a very straightforward way, not a cynical way. Part of it is wanting to be successful. Part of it is wanting money. We, we know that because the rappers talk about money and success a lot in their songs. But just by listening, you understood that they were also going to challenge their audience, that they weren't just going to take it easy and do what everyone else was doing. The idea of being original, but also wanting money, wasn't complicated for uh, someone like Busta Rhymes. And this is what really got me, mm-hmm. uh, along with, of course, the 
musical um, playfulness that he had. This really changed me, this feeling of being inspired by him because he was almost like a superhero. He was a person who turned himself into a superhero. And I remember thinking, this is what I need to do. I need to create my own, uh, my own fantasy, a uh, kind of fantasy character that will be very authentic in, in the themes, but uh, will also be larger than life because mm-hmm. that will get people's attention and will hopefully connect with people. Um, this is what I read. You make the distinction between the artist Jason Beck and the entertainer Chili Gonzalez. Well, I'm an artist when I'm alone. Mm. That's it. To yeah. me, I'm both. Yeah. It's just, am I alone? Then I'm an artist because I, I, I can only play for myself. And that's what it is to be an artist, is to be in dialogue with yourself and learn about yourself by doing things. But the minute you're in front of at least one other person, you're not an artist anymore. You're an entertainer because you are thinking about another. To me, it's literally that simple. Mm-hmm. I don't choose between being an artist or an entertainer. It's about the situation. And most of the time in an interview uh, right now, I don't consider myself an artist. I consider myself an entertainer because I'm thinking about things. I know we have a time limit. You're in front of me. I have to connect with you. Mm-hmm. I also have to say what I want to say. Uh, I, I'm not in a dialogue with myself here. I'm mm-hmm. in a dialogue with you mm-hmm. and the imagined people listening. There must be at least like 61 people listening right now. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking about them too. So how could I be an artist? I'm not in dialogue with myself. Yeah. The minute I go home and get back to work on whatever I'm working on, I'm going to become an artist again. And so to me, it's wonderful to be both, you know, and I just don't see why you would uh, have to choose. But I also read um, coming back to rap is that you used rap to get a message across quite aggressively and then you changed that. Is that correct? Get a message across by what? Um, be, being quite aggressive in, in your, in, yeah, in getting your message across, just like powerful rapping, whatever is, is bothering you. That's what I read. That it was a quite an aggressive way of getting your, whatever you have to say. To the audience. Oh, I, I don't know about aggressive, but... No? I, uh, <laughs> Powerful, I don't know what term we could use there. Um, well, it's just that when I was rapping a lot, which was the years between 2000 and around 2012, mm-hmm. it was constant in my mind that if I walk down the street, I think of words and I think of rhymes and I think of phrases that I think would work well in songs if I were rapping and it would just come to me naturally. And then in 2012, I moved to Cologne and my life changed a lot. And I even started, for example, doing some therapy type things. And all of a sudden I sort of realized that when I would write raps, it probably was a way of trying to get some things out Mm -hmm. that didn't really have a, a way out otherwise. And the minute I started having like more appropriate Uh, places to listen to myself. I started having less and less of these moments of, oh, I should put this in a song. And all of a sudden it felt like instrumental music is a more effective way of getting my emotions out because it's abstracted. And no big surprise, uh, basically in 2012, I didn't really rap much since then or write new rap songs. I still rap on stage every night in my concert. Uh, because those are my songs. Mm. But what I don't do is naturally walk down the street and think of new things I want to say with words. 
And the one song I did do was in 2014. It's a song called Not a Musical Genius. Mm -hmm. And this is a song where I kind of break the fantasy of being Mr. Musical Genius. So the only rap song I wrote since the bubble popped for me in a personal way was also only a song about popping the bubble. So there's something about writing raps that was part of a very vivid fantasy world for me. Uh, and my life went a certain way that my life became a little bit more about reality in that time. And all of a sudden rap was not the appropriate tool to use. So I wouldn't say it was about uh, getting out aggression, but I would say it's about uh, getting out a lot of um, unconscious thoughts and unconscious uh, fantasies and frustrations that would go into these raps. And of course, now looking back and seeing what I was writing, and it's interesting because I, I recorded a lot of rap songs that I never released. And I sometimes wonder, why didn't I release those? If I look back now, I see the lyrics and I understand why something in me wasn't ready to put this out into the world because it was just too psychopathic. Mm -hmm. It was, it was too much. <laughs> it okay. was like sick, you know, let's skip to the club scene. <laughs> let's make a little skip. Um, well, I remember you from your Berlin days for sure, because I followed peaches a lot due to the electro clash times in 2000 and following years, which was really exciting. Are you like a person that likes club? No. No, you don't go. No. Not at all. No. <laughs> okay. Never. So you don't have to be afraid to be seen on the dance floor and recognized by people. Do you get recognized on the street? Of course, in certain corners, there's always going to be uh, a certain corner that would have the kind of people who would know what I do. Sure. Mm. I mean, in general, I would say my music is more famous than I am. Mm. And this is a wonderful position to be in. I, I would never want to be more personally famous than my music. I like that many people know my piano music and don't even realize that I have this persona and that I have these live shows and things like that. It's just, they just, the piano music especially has really traveled the world mm -hmm. and uh, gotten to places where I think people don't even necessarily think there's a person behind it. And that's what I love. Um, but to get back to the clubs, no, no. I, it's not the kind of experience that I grew up with. And by the time I discovered it, I would have already been a tourist in my late 20s in Berlin. So, of course, I went here and there to check it out, but I realized it wasn't really for me. And my social life was always around playing music with people. Uh, we had house parties with instruments, and it was always about playing music. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we liked to smoke weed rather than drink or take any other kinds of drugs. And so we were like stoner musicians <laughs> not ecstasy dancers you know it's the different culture and a different way of interacting with people and this was already in my blood so much in my late by my late 20s when i finally got to see another sort of uh another kind of culture i just realized oh i'm a tourist here it's interesting but it's 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 not for me mm -hmm. um but of course i mean I, i in a way i know it well because i know many musicians who came from that world and i I like hearing about it, and I, uh, it sounds wonderful. I've never really experienced it myself, but 
I like that there's a kind of uh, ecstatic spiritual quality to some of what people tell me about their best club experiences. And uh, that sounds wonderful. And of course, musically, it's, uh, it, has, it has a very different um, aesthetic. Most of the songs don't have a lot of vocals. It's not really about songwriting. Mm -hmm. It's not really about the same things that I'm looking for. It's not the same kind of storytelling as in the music that I make. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm very interested by this. Wow, it's music with another whole way of storytelling. And this gets me interested. And most interesting to me is a DJ is more like a stand-up comedian than what I do. Because a, yeah. a DJ has a very specific function that is in a way involuntary. If people don't want to dance, they just don't dance. Just like if people don't want to laugh, they don't laugh. In my world, people can always give you polite applause and you can, you can never really be sure is this connecting. But as a comedian, if you hear that laugh, you know, you got them. And as a DJ, if you, if they're all Depends. dancing, yeah. you know, you succeeded. There's something very black and white. Mm -hmm. Yes or no. Mm -hmm. That I, that I like about uh, electronic music scenes and specifically DJs playing for, for uh, audiences who want to dance. Mm. There's something so, direct about what your job is. And in a way, I think the entertainer label uh, is not so strange for DJs because they are by nature also audience oriented. Yeah, you don't, you don't really DJ alone. I mean, some yeah. people maybe do, but yeah. you don't really DJ alone. Just like, you know, you don't really do comedy alone. Uh, whereas what I do, uh, there's a little bit of this, you do it alone, but then you bring it to the people and then, you know, um, and it's a little bit like the, the grenze are a little bit blurry between yeah. uh, what is really the function of this and how do people react to it. And in the dance music world, there's just this, you either get it or you don't. And this mm -hmm. is what I really like about it. Um, first of all, you're answering my questions without me even asking them, which I kind of like. <laughs> you get there by yourself. And I always um, say about a DJ, about myself even, um, we get into a role of being a Dienstleister, you know? What's that? Dienstleister, someone that delivers a job. Yeah. A Dienstleister, a Krankenschwester is a Dienstleister as well. Mm. She, like, she's doing a job. Like, she has her patients and she yes, nurses and, them. And, well, I, I used to play piano in, in restaurants mm. and uh, hotel lounges mm -hmm. and stores and some bars. And in a way, when you know you're supplying background music, it also puts you in this role of, what did you call it? Dienst Dienstleister. Dienstleister. Mm. There's something about being a working musician, which I did a lot. I mm. played at weddings and bar mitzvahs and I would play jazz songs. And sometimes they'd say, can you please learn these three songs for our wedding or whatever? And you sort of understand uh, you're not uh, the glamorous artist here. You're just fulfilling a very clear role mm -hmm. and it's true that the the dj has this as well and um i think without this background music job that i had i would be a very different musician for example one of the reasons my piano albums work well is because they work well as background music many musicians would say that's beneath me i don't ever want to be background music i need people to pay attention to me all the time and i think Both are great. I try to make albums that work well when you listen close, but if you also put them on as background music, people deserve good background music also, and I have no issue with that. And maybe that comes from the years that I played in restaurants and had to understand that it's still an important job 
to create background music mm-hmm. for people. It's actually a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and your job is to not have them pay attention to you, but they receive your music in a more passive way. And this is also very powerful. When you are getting into people's ears passively, uh, you could say that it's almost more powerful than if they're listening to you in a direct way. I've just recently played um, I Am Europe in a set of mine, probably in a remix, although I like the original version quite a lot. Do you still get requests for remixes or vice versa? Do you re- request remixes for your piano music or is that just now out of, and, no, out of the uh, window? Well, enough people do their own remixes without mm-hmm. me asking, mm-hmm. just online, that it's nice when people are so inspired, they make their own version and then, mm-hmm. then it's fun to promote it and say, oh, here's a new version of this song. But uh, we don't really um, commission remixes okay. and... You know, most people know that I don't do remixes, but I might do a remake, for example. And so sometimes people ask me to do a remake uh, of a song on on their album or something mm-hmm. like this. Um, and I like the idea of multiple versions. The idea of uh, of of the remix is still uh, very important, and it was already important back in the days of Mozart with the theme and variations, which was kind of the first version of remix that uh, that exists that I can think of. Yes, I suppose I have a little bit of fear. I think one of the worst things that could happen to someone like me would be to have a remix become uh, the most famous song, you know, the the Maloko problem. Mm -hmm. You know, Maloko have this song, Bring It Back, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's their biggest hit, but it's actually not their music. It's just the the vocal with a, I forget who even did the remix. I think Schiller. Anyway, you know, yeah, so yeah, and I think it becomes sort of difficult to <laughs> yeah. live in a world where, oh my God, everyone knows a song I did, but it's not really my version. Mm-hmm. It's not my sound world. It's not my aesthetic. And I think this could probably be so. Maybe it's good I didn't have uh, too many remixes because if one of them became more famous than my own music, then I think I would be frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're already in a very electronic music world with our topics now, let's talk about Daft Punk. Because they're huge. They're quite mainstreamy, but still, of course, they kind of cater a club scene. And your album, which you've made together, Random Access Memories, even won a Grammy. Was that something very, very special? Or was it just in the in a row of, yeah, of course, I deserve that because I'm the maestro? <laughs> well, no, because that's their Grammy. Okay. So I, I, I would, it would mean much more to me to have a, uh, a sm- much smaller prize, perhaps, <laughs> for my own music than it would to get a Grammy for being part of Daft Punk. You know, Daft Punk are very generous. And so when they asked me to be part of the album, they uh, were generous enough to include me as uh, a featured artist. Mm-hmm. And that means when they won a Grammy, I'm one of the people who gets it. So, you know, to get the Grammy for the album is... Um, Of course, exciting, mm. but it's more a reminder of how exciting it was to be part of Daft Punk's album. In a way, that was the that was the moment where I went to bed thinking, "Oh my goodness, I admired this this band for so long, and here I am on their album." You know, when I did the studio session with them in 2011, that was the moment where I thought, "Oh my God, this is really." Uh, you know, the 13 year old version of me would really be, be freaking out right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those moments of just feeling like a child, you know, getting the best possible gift. And then when the Grammy came, of course, it's like a reminder of that in a way. And, you know, 
I have this Grammy sitting on my bathroom shelf now. And when it came time to launch my music school, the conservatory, someone said, oh, you should do a, you should do a video where you call people. You know, you, I, I can imagine you on the, the side of a mountain with a giant horn and you're calling all these musicians to join your music school. And I thought, oh, I can do better than a horn. I have a Grammy on my bathroom shelf. You know, this, this Grammy is kind of like when I got the Guinness World Record for the 27 hours. Mm-hmm. It becomes like an iconic thing that everyone knows already. And it means that I can play with this. Yeah. So I play with the idea of having the Guinness World Record for the longest concert. I play with the idea of having the Grammy, which I used in my conservatory video. Instead of blowing in a horn on the side of a mountain, I'm on the side of a mountain blowing into my Grammy. And that's the reason that the, the students want to come join the school. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to have these, these things that people recognize uh, because they do impress people. To tell people I want a Grammy is sad or not sad. It gets people to pay attention. And so this becomes something I can play with. Yeah a little bit like I play with the big pop songs in my master classes. Yeah. It's like people know what a Guinness world record is. They know what a Grammy is. They know what Britney Spears hit me baby one more time. So these are all like toys for me to use that work with people's psychology. This is just an opportunity for me to, uh, what can I turn this status of Grammy winner? How can I turn this in a gonzo way? We're going to talk about your music school in a tiny bit before i wanted to know how did you get to meet daft punk just around paris in the in, oh. the, in the music scene of paris okay. over 10 years and they asked me for a remix which was one of my first remakes back in 2001 mm-hmm. uh, and since then we just sort of stayed in touch and uh yeah we're like you know friendly acquaintances yeah. i would say i think um to make it clear to the listener when you're in a certain scene you meet people that are pff, sometimes very, very big stars. I mean, it's the same with actors and actresses. You know, some little actor could be playing a, a role with a huge known actor and all of a the sudden they even become friends because we're all people and sometimes we find friendship with, between famous people and not so famous people, I guess. Um, and well, I mean, no one knows what Daft Punk looks like, don't forget. Yeah, yeah. So it's also, there's a level of... There's a level of just they could be anyone. I was I was going to I was going to say maybe they're not Daft Punk, <laughs> maybe they tricked you. <laughs> um, yeah, when you hang out with musicians, uh, it's it's tends to be a very small group in mm-hmm. any given city. Uh, but in this case, Daft Punk asked me to redo their song, mm-hmm. and this was like an opening for me. And I thought, okay, I'm I'm. This is amazing. They must like what I do if they ask me to do this. And so right away, I just thought, I need to turn this into meeting them. Mm-hmm. And so I said, oh, I did, I did it, but I want to come play it for you personally. <laughs> you know, make yeah. sure you like it. And that's when I started to know them a bit personally, especially one half of Daft Punk, whose name is Thomas. And he was, one of the, he was one of the guest teachers at the conservatory, for example. And I remember uh, showing him some piano chords and him showing me a little bit this like strange system of MIDI that he had on his piano. So, you know, we're always exchanging information and it just sort of happens because there's a professional respect that is shown 
And as soon as there's that professional respect, you look at it like an opening and it's up to you whether you want to try to uh, meet these people and see if maybe, you know, something you heard in their music that made you pay attention will translate to a kind of friendly, um, a friendly relationship of some mm -hmm. kind. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes you meet people whose music you respect and you finally meet them and there's not a lot of chemistry between you. So it's not guaranteed. But in the case of Daft Punk, it turned into a, you know, 15 years long uh, kind of friendly relationship that's mm -hmm. kind of ongoing. Every couple of years, we have some excuse to see each other, like the conservatory or uh, some dinner party or just deciding to meet up and have lunch or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. We talked about so many different music styles which you play, which you uh, recorded, are you sometimes afraid that you would scare fans away? Because some people tend to be very narrow-minded and just thinking, oh, I just like electronic music or I just like rap or just the piano stuff. And now I feel offended because he's doing a totally different style of music. I don't know if people like that exist. <laughs> I think that's a bit of a cliche. Yeah. Most, most people I know have a pretty wide range of things they like. I don't know. I never, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. So I guess I didn't scare that many people away. I, I never think about it, to be okay. honest. I mean, I so don't do just, as much, yeah. I don't do as much as people think, you know, I'm always, I'm always sort of at the piano composing. I do a little bit of the entertaining on top, which is either master classes, mm -hmm. maybe some rapping. And I have a, a strong hip hop influence musically, mm -hmm. a strong electronic influence. And that's about it. I don't do rock music. I don't do Baroque music. I don't do reggae. I, there's, there's more that I don't do than I do. I only like a few things. I know you have a music school. Let's talk about your music school. Sure. Um, I really like the name Conservatory because it's a nice play on music conservatory, um, which is the English way to say Musikschule or Musik. Yeah, or Conservatorium. Or conservatorium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. Because It works in every language. Latin. Yeah. Why did you come up with the idea? I'm not really sure. I guess I just, um, it's enjoyable to be in touch with younger musicians and it's enjoyable to uh, create positive energy. And, you know, there's a lot of musicians who I think they would just need a, a little bit of, of contact with musicians who have learned a lot. You know, I just, I learned so much from hanging out with people like Daft Punk or Drake or uh, Jarvis Cocker, the people who are, have more experience than me or who have done it on a level that's deeper and higher than me. And this is always interesting to me. And I just thought, well, what if I can bring people to learn from my experience and to learn from the experience of those people And uh, they can learn from Peaches, they can learn from Feist, they can learn from Jarvis Cocker, they can learn from me. And uh, in my case, there are certain topics that I'm very interested in that it seems like there's no other place to learn. Mm -hmm. So if you go to Red Bull Music Academy, for example, which I think is stopping... It is. It's very sadly. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it's wonderful. It has a bit more emphasis on, I would say, music production, DJing, things like this. But you would also watch these sort of guest lecturers come in and they would do like a two hour long sort of like almost like what we're doing, a mm -hmm. kind of two hour long deep dive into their experience. And that that's great. But I also thought, how can you teach people the thing that I'm most interested in, which is essentially audience psychology and how to create a persona that isn't fake, but that will 
make your music more powerful. These are the topics I think that I got the most fascinated by. I'm not interested in teaching people about my musical aesthetics and telling them how to change from one key to the other. That's not really what the conservatory is about. Uh, I might give them a little bit of musical advice if they really want it, but I, the conservatory is more about performance practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, performance was what music was for thousands of years before recording. It was always one person and another one listening. Maybe even in a cave, someone just tapping on a drum, the other one dancing, the first DJ, you know? Uh, then all of a sudden there's this idea of recording and artistic genius and permanence. And this is all wonderful because it means the music can go farther in the world and thank God for recordings, but it's not a replacement for what music was. And now that the recording industry is kind of changing, performance again becomes much more interesting because it's the only way to really build your audience and maybe make a living, in fact. So I feel like if I can give a young musician who's in their 20s, someone who maybe thinks that because they're on SoundCloud that they're already building their audience, I can show them maybe another way of looking at it that is not only going to be spiritually better for them because they're closer to what music was for those thousands of years, but in a pragmatic way, I'm giving them the keys to make a living also. Because to build your audience concert by concert is still the most sure way to make a living as a musician in 2019. Mm. So that's why I started the conservatory, I guess. If I look back, I think, well, I have something to offer and no one's teaching it. Mm. Uh, there's Red Bull Music Academy for young producers. There's the Real Conservatory for classical musicians. There's a lot of music business classes that you can take for learning about the music business. But who's really talking about how to frame your performance? Who's really talking about that every detail from the moment that people show up to your concert to the time they leave uh, is an opportunity to make it more powerful, to make them feel closer to you, to make the music more powerful? These are all things that I spent so much time thinking about, how to construct a set list, when to surprise your audience, when to satisfy them, how do you earn their trust? All these kinds of uh, subjects are something that I think about a lot. And I know that many of my musical heroes think about a lot. But that's the part that doesn't get taught so much. So that's what the conservatory is about. And last year we had Tama from Daft Punk, mm -hmm. Jarvis Cocker, Peaches, Lisa, the singer of Ibei. Uh, we had uh, Fred Wesley, who was the musical director for Tina Turner and James Brown and Parliament Funkadelic and Ray Charles, like a living legend, 82 years old. So we had all these different musicians talking about what it means to perform and what it means to present yourself. Yeah. And that's as far as it goes in a way. It's about being aware of your audience and everything, every subject that is around that audience perception and audience psychology. Um, the story behind um, Thomas from Daft Punk is kind, kind of cute. I heard it in a different interview, how you surprised your students. Actually. Yes, exactly. Well, very cute story. Thomas from Daft Punk didn't want to be filmed or announced or recorded, which is totally up to him. And so I thought, well, if he's not going to let us announce it, then maybe I have a really good opportunity to surprise my students because no one knows what he looks like. Mm -hmm. So on the first night, I said, we're going to go visit the studio of, uh, of a friend of mine here in Paris. We got in the van and we go there. And I just said, when we were about to walk in, I said, 
guys, you can't take any pictures. Don't touch anything. This is someone who doesn't let a lot of people in. This is a very special moment we're going to have. And, uh, and so we went in and he started talking and I told him they don't know who you are. So it's up to you to figure out how you want to reveal it or not. We can wait until we leave and, or it can be during, you know, and we're talking about performance and, um, he talked a lot about how people will ascribe to them a kind of long-term master plan. It looks like they planned everything perfectly for the last 20 years because everything seems to work that Daft Punk does. But what he was saying is it's all a series of day-to-day decisions and that adds up to something that looks like a plan. And this is something I really, really relate to. People also think, is there a master plan? Do you think five years ahead? No, you think five hours ahead but that all adds up to a kind of long-term plan because you have to follow your authentic uh, decision-making. That's the only through line. So he was talking about this, and then at one point he said, uh, you know, uh, for us, uh, performance became about this. And he like grabs a shoebox and opens up the shoebox and pulls out the Daft Punk helmet out of a shoebox. And then you could see the seven conservatory students all just sort of <gasps> you know, grabbing each other's arms, like suddenly realizing it. And this was a wonderful moment because it felt a little bit like I was the Wizard of Oz or like, what's the guy from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Anyway, um, Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka. It felt a bit like this, that it was, it was just uh, like they were in an amusement park and they mm-hmm. were just suddenly uh, able to have access. And, and this was a wonderful feeling because I sat there with him at lunch listening to everything he's saying because I want to get every word of wisdom from, from him and I could sort of recreate that experience for them. And so much of the conservatory is about recreating it. That's why it's great to have my musical friends there because mm-hmm. I learned so much from mm-hmm. Peaches. So let's expose them to Peaches too. Mm-hmm. I learned so much from hanging out with Jarvis. Let's let them hang out with Jarvis. And uh, that's so much a part of the conservatory is I'm going to, everything that it took me 20 years to learn, I'm going to try to shove it into 10 days. Okay. You just mentioned there were seven students. How many do apply and how do you decide on who to take? They send videos. I ask them to send me a video. Show me your musical life Mm -hmm. is what I ask them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had 800 the first year. Wow. And I chose seven. Mm -hmm. Uh, This year we had 500 and I chose six. But the 500 this year were better. And I think it's because nobody knew what the conservatory was the first year. So people were just applying. But even if they were clearly not the right type of musician. But this year, people could look at what we did last year. And I think they could say, oh, this is for me. Mm -hmm. So the self-selection was much stronger this year. uh, And I make a short list of about 20 out of the hundreds. And then I ask them to do a second video. And the second video is something with a lot of limits. They can't edit. It has to be one single take of them performing, for example. This is like an x-ray. This is, I can really see how they can work with uh, having to do something that wasn't their own idea. Um, So I told them to do a Christmas song the first year. This year they had to do a summer song, for example. So I know they have to come up with something new. And I see how they work a little bit under pressure and having to do a single performance lasting just a few minutes. And this is what allows me to choose the best six or seven people to make a group. Right, I'm looking for the best group of six, not just the best six people. They need to complement each other. One has to be strong where the other one is weak. Mm-hmm. They need to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. They need to see that person is fearless in that respect. I'm going to learn from that. 
And then the other has to see, look at how free they are musically. I need to learn from that. So they each have like a superpower, but also like a super weakness. And this is what I'm looking for. So there aren't any surprises or anyone who just blew your mind and you thought, oh, I have to have this person. It happens all the time. Okay. I, I have mm -hmm. to, I have to, you know, I have to fall in love in a way, of course. Okay. Um, I'm going to spend 10 days with them. I feel like I have to like them mm -hmm. as people. Mm -hmm. I feel like they have to be touching. Mm -hmm. I feel like they have to be a weird combination of authentic, but also living out their fantasy in some way. And um, in a way, it's very, it's very difficult. But when I finally get to the end, it looks like, well, it had to be these six. It had to be these seven. Once I choose it, it looks like it was destiny that it would be these people because they complement each other in a group. And of course, it can't just be people from one part of the world. It can't just be all boys or all girls. Mm -hmm. It can't be all white people, because part of what the conservatory is about is this exchange, this cultural and musical exchange. So it has to be as diverse as possible. And that also, in a way, makes it more fun and more easy, because it's like you're really assembling a, a super group with, with different powers, and, and, and you're imagining already what it will be like when one meets the other. I have one last question because we're running out of time. <laughs> Is there any vision, your vision for the future or thought? That's a very open question. So I, I as I told you, I, I don't, uh, I don't think about the future a lot, believe mm -hmm. it or not, because mm -hmm. every great opportunity that came to me was coming from such a strange combination of accidents and um, specifically people you change what you do because you meet people and they influence you and you have to be open that this can happen at any time. If you over plan, then you miss out on these accidents and this is, can happen in a microscopic way when you're recording a song. Uh, you might have a broken instrument, like a broken synthesizer and the smart musician says, Oh, it's broken. Maybe this, maybe this is going to create something exciting. And then you end up putting in the craziest sound you've ever put into your song because the thing was broken. The dumb musician says, oh, the keyboard's broken. Let's get, let's get one that works. They missed out on the chance for this accident. And so it can happen in a very small way in your song. Uh, but it can also happen that you wouldn't pay attention to someone who was talking to you because maybe you have it in your mind. Oh, I, I want to meet that musician over there in the corner. I'm not going to talk to this one. And you might miss out. Maybe that's Peaches. That's how I met Peaches, randomly. I met her randomly at a party and then we started talking and then it ended up that we had like a whole musical journey together. And the Kaiser Quartet I met by accident and then I ended up being inspired by them enough to do a whole album, Chambers, with them where I learned to teach myself how to write chamber music. I met Boys Noise randomly before he'd even released anything and we became buddies and then he did a Feist remix and then all of a sudden we were doing the Ivory Tower album together and now he's one of my closest friends and collaborators. So look, if, if, if I wasn't open to these accidents, then I would have missed out on all these amazing things that happened to me. So if you think too much about the future, you miss the accident that could happen in the present. So I've, I trained myself to not over plan or over predict. And, uh, and I would advise more musicians to always imagine 
that the next person they meet could become the most inspiring person in their lives. And, uh, and it would be a shame to miss out on that. And I think that is something that's not only um, applicable for musicians, but for everyone who works maybe creatively or just, you know, wants to experience. Sure. Yeah. So thank you for that. My thanks, pleasure. thanks a lot for, for so much information. Even I feel very inspired now. Wonderful. Me too. Thank you. Das war also Chili Gonzalez oder wie er im wirklich echten Leben auf dem Ausweis heißt, Jason Beck. Naja, ihr habt es ja selbst gehört, weder Chili noch Jason möchte er genannt werden, sondern einfach nur Maestro. Aber hey, warum nicht? Der Typ hat echt eine ganze Menge erreicht. So viele Menschen berührt mit seiner Musik aus den verschiedenen Genres. In den Shownotes findet ihr Links zu Gilly Gonzales und zum Conservatory, also seiner Musikschule. Lasst uns auch gerne eine Bewertung bei iTunes da. Ne? Immer mal wieder sagen, was euch am Podcast gefällt. Wir freuen uns natürlich sehr auf euer Feedback. Mein Name ist Gesine Kühne. Ich freue mich, wenn wir uns das nächste Mal hören. Ansonsten sehen wir uns natürlich im Club. Das war der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast. Abonniert den Podcast bei Apple, Soundcloud, Spotify oder dieser. Wir sehen uns im Club. Bis dann. <lacht>